What is up, everybody, and welcome to a brand new edition of the Selby is Godcast. I am TJ Zuppi. He is Zach Meisel. We thank everybody that subscribes to us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Of course, leaving us a five-star review always helps us out, helps other people find the podcast, too. Keeps us rising up the rankings and makes this show possible. Thank everybody that supports the podcast over at Anchor and that follows us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, at Selby is Godcast. What is up, my brother? Absolutely nothing. Uh, how are we going to fill the next 90 minutes? Well, I was under the impression that you brought notes. Apparently you didn't. So, hmm. How about this weather that we're having? <laughs> right? I actually do have a complaint before we get into what we want to discuss. And I know we threw out for some questions on Twitter. And I got a few of them, so... I think we can fill a show with just some listener questions. We haven't done one of those in a while. Leading into the offseason feels like a good time, but I have a, I don't know if it's a hot take or not. I don't even know if it's a take as much as it's just my opinion watching something. I, I, I can never figure, what is a take and what is just something aesthetically pleasing to me? Is that a hot take if I say something? Like, okay, here it is. Let me just lay it out. Watching the postseason, I have not enjoyed the opener strategy. Um, why? Because I don't. And then find I'll it, tell you if I agree. I don't find it aesthetically pleasing. That is not to say that I don't understand why teams use it. Uh, teams like the Dodgers and, of course, the Rays as well in the World Series. They've gotten there in part because of how they utilize their pitching staff. What I'm saying is not from an analysis standpoint. I know the benefits, and when used correctly, I think it can be very effective. I'm simply talking as a baseball fan that is watching this without any dog in this fight, just wants to, to see an entertaining series and be able to follow narratives that I think are fun to, to sort of make up in your head and see how everyone else weighs in on those on social media and wherever else you, you take part in watching this. I don't find it to be entertaining to watch. As, as entertaining as it is as seeing somebody that goes out there and shoves for seven innings and you can follow along a game two or game three, being able to see pitching matchups and, and knowing how those games are going to progress. I find it so much more fun when it's just the traditional starter, and it feels so dirty to say that. I'm, I, I'm not saying that it's not, there's not benefit to it. I'm simply stating that as a baseball fan, I don't find it as enjoyable as watching a guy go out there for six innings. It's funny you brought this up because you didn't mention this when we were prepping for this show. Not that we do much prep for this show. Um, we, of course we do. But I had a similar thought, I think, earlier this week or over the weekend. Uh, I believe baseball sorely needs two things. Stars and storylines. They need ways to get into the stupid debate shows on the sports channels. They need ways to be super popular on Twitter. And they need ways, more generally, to market their sport. And the way to do that, stars and storylines. And so when you have eight different relievers patching together nine innings, you get neither of those. Um, I think when you have the Clayton Kershaw redemption narrative, that is an easy one. When you have a starting pitcher just shoving and throwing the game of their life. Like I think back to remember 2003 when Josh Beckett tossed a shutout to 
clinched the World Series for the Marlins against the Yankees. Like, he became came a, an overnight sensation. Like, you need things like that. And so if, if eight pitchers toss, like, an inning and a third or something like that, none of them are going to stand out, really. So I'm with you. For, for the sake of the casual fan and the sport as a whole, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. It, it makes you... Like, it's hard for a casual fan if they just, like, turn on the game and it's the third inning and John Curtis is pitching for the Rays. And you're like, one, who is this guy? Two, did he just come in the game? Who's next? I don't know who's available. I, don't, I can't remember who pitched yesterday. I, like, there's so much context that you're missing. Whereas if you turn it in and it's the sixth inning and you see uh, Tyler Glass now still pitching, well, then you know you, you're caught up. So I'm with you. It's not aesthetically pleasing, but as you alluded to, it's often advantageous by the teams that decide to employ it. And it's certainly worked, Yeah, I think, I, I think at times. If you have the choice, as a, a big league manager, I and Tito has even said this before in the past you know, when he's been praised for how he utilized his relievers in 2016. If your team is set up to rely on starting pitching, I think most managers would be more than happy to give the ball to Kershaw and let him go strong for six or seven innings and not have to get in the way. I know why they do it. I understand the reasons for it, and I think it has been beneficial to clubs like the Dodgers, like the Rays, that are willing to think outside the box. But I think you and I are on the same page here. For the casual fan, it's not as easy to follow along. And it's not to say that games like uh, a bullpen game can't be fun to watch, because even as we watched in the 2016 postseason when Trevor Bauer had to exit that Toronto start with his finger exploding on the mound, it was fun to see the relievers then have to pick up the slack. Um, that became the storyline for the day. But when it's strictly just openers, then the, the nuance of that and how how unusual that is goes out the window. So that's not really a storyline to itself anymore. Yeah, and, and it makes it tough. Like, I, I know a lot of people like to just, like my buddies are like, who do you think is going to win tonight? And often when you have that conversation, it's completely built upon the starting pitching matchup. You know, it's like, okay, well, the Indians have Kluber and Toronto's got, uh, who was the dude who, who was Toronto's ace that year? Well, they had like four pitchers that were all on the same Not level. Not Stroman. Uh, I don't think, did they start Aaron, they didn't start Aaron Sanchez in one. Marco Estrada, that's what I was thinking of. What happened to him? He last pitched in 20. Briefly. Okay, anyway. You look at the pitching matchup and that basically forms your opinion. And so if you if you say, oh, well, I, I think, you know, tomorrow night it's it's Kershaw against a bullpen game, how are you supposed to forecast that? How are you supposed to, to have any sort of inkling as to, as to what's going to happen. So I think it takes a little bit away from the anticipation, too. Again, that's not to say that I don't enjoy watching a parade of guys come out of the bullpen that throw 99 with ridiculous stuff. Or seeing, uh, when it works properly, Dustin May come out and and pitch multiple games and instead of just pitching once every four or five days. I keep thinking about him in an Indian's uniform. <laughs> Why is that? Because I, I he was intriguing to me because I think I... I Briefly watched some video of him last year, and then when the Indians and Dodgers were talking over the winter, and you started thinking oh, you, about possibilities. That guy that watched one highlight made your determination. <laughs> well, okay. I just he has the like the Clevenger sincerely, leg kick. Sincerely, the guy that watched the Browns' sixth round pick and is now convinced that, that dude is a stud <laughs> because of his YouTube channel, man. He's got the Clevenger leg kick on crack, 
and then he throws 101. I mean, what's not to like? Sure. He's got crazy stuff. I didn't know he had that good of stuff last year. Um, I don't know how seriously he was involved in the conversations and whether it would have required, you know, was he, if it would have been Lindor plus Clevenger, is that what would have got them, you know, May and some other piece? I don't know. But it uh, would have been fun to see uh, the Indians pitching gurus work with him and yeah. mold him into the next Hall of Famer. But I was thinking when he was having some struggles earlier in the postseason, well, just earlier in the World Series, and then Gavin Lux isn't a part of this at all for the Dodgers. And those are two names that we talked about seemingly endlessly. And it's like at the time you're thinking, yeah, Lux and May for Lindor, that, that's really intriguing. And then you flash forward to the World Series, May stinks and Lux can't get on the field. Really? These are the two guys that everyone wanted? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the Dodgers' depth and youth, despite also having more financial resources than anybody, is just disgusting. I mean, it's, it is absolutely insane what their farm system looks like year in and year out, what they're able to do. I mean, they move guys all around the field. They always have really capable backups that can enter the game late in the game. And they have tons of pit. I mean, they're just loaded top to bottom in that organization. That's being there, working in their front office must be just the dream. Yeah. The resources. I mean, there's certainly yeah. a lot of pressure, too, since they haven't delivered on the main stage as of this recording. Uh, but that's got to be a lot of fun. I did enjoy Kershaw pitching well enough to silence any of the narratives about him sucking in the postseason anymore. It was to the point where. I've, I've been, if I'm rooting for anything, I just want a good series and length in the series. You can get to a Game 7, it's fantastic in my mind. So I was very joyful that the Rays won in Game 4 because it would then set up. You didn't want, I didn't want it to be 3-1 with Kershaw on the mound. It just seemed like a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. How much so, fun was that play, by the way? I know. I know in Game 4, the way that that ended and the ball getting away and... A Rosarena scoring in the, the manner that he did. And then Kershaw pitches well enough in Game 5. It leads you to at least be in a position where this is probably going to come down to Game 7 and Kershaw is probably going to be on the mound. He's going to give it up somehow. And that'll be, that'll be another nail in the coffin of everyone that has already made the determination that the dude just can't pitch in the playoffs. Yeah. You know what? Narratives I, suck. Go with Well, Oakers. I was going to say, like, I, I, <laughs> no matter what team he's pitching for, I hope Corey Kluber gets the chance to pitch in the postseason at some point in the future, just because one way or another, I'd like to see him either completely dispel that narrative or maybe, I don't know, at least give the fan, the the people who are so adamant that he's terrible in October, just completely dismissing all but one start of 2016. And that start came on when he was just completely exhausted. Uh, Those who just want to dismiss what he has done, like at least give them a little bit more of a sample size, give them some more ammo. Uh, but it, it also would just be fun. You know, I think we, if Kluber had pitched for a bigger market and had a little bit more experience in October, I think we'd be, a lot of people might compare him to Kershaw um, in that regard. But hopefully he'll get another chance. I think it would be fun to see. Do you want to field some questions this week? Yeah, you yeah. do. What do these people have? What was your idea to begin with? So I figured you'd want to. Can we give a quick shout-out to our buddy Brett Gates, who sent us this uh, last week? 
he was watching the movie Moneyball, and who made an appearance on the mound <laughs> in the movie, but former random Cleveland Indian of the day, your buddy, Tam. Yeah, the, that timing was insane. But wasn't it was the wrong uniform? Because with Oakland, I think Tam wore 29, and wasn't he wearing number one in the picture? Uh, I'm looking at it now. I can see a nine, and I can't tell if that's a two next to it. I think, oh. no, he is. He's wearing 29. Okay, I stand corrected. I don't know what I was looking at. So why are we going to trust your judgment on any of these questions? Uh, you can't that, I mean, that, that is wild, though. simple tweet. It's that sweet synchronicity that we're looking for in our lives every day. Before we do open it up, I, do, I, I wanted to have one of my own. Question of my own for the great Zach Meisel to answer. We've talked a little bit about contract options, uh, especially our last episode, and we also went through some non-tender stuff and talked about how different the position player side of this was going to look in, in 2021. But the three guys with options, Perez, Santana, Brad Hand. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, Domingo Santana. <laughs> Domingo Santana. No, wait, just, just throw that over there to the side. Leave him at the alternate site like the Indians did in the postseason. Contract options, Perez, Santana, Brad Hand. You don't have to necessarily lay this out on whether or not they pick up the option or they don't. I think it's a different conversation of can you rank in order of most likely to least likely that those three guys – are still with the Indians in 2021 through some manner. So even if, like, say they decline Santana's option? Correct. And re-sign him? Correct. Okay. Uh, I will Santana say hand. Perez is most likely. I, I do think they will pick up his option. I've always thought they would pick up his option, but I'm still really confused about Austin Hedges and the, why they even acquired him. I've never gotten a good answer on that. Um I, and if, he's if I had to guess, make, if I had to guess, my theory would be they were concerned that Perez's injury was going to end up keeping him out for the rest of the year, or or, or be more detrimental to his production. Then, yeah, I, I guess maybe the question is I don't understand Sandy Leone. Um, yeah, so I, I'm. It, it just seems so weird. Like we're talking about all these cuts, and the payroll could be like seventy five cents next year, and yet. You might have two catchers, neither of which can hit much, making like $9 million. It's bizarre. Uh, I, Perez, I would put most likely, and then Santana, and then Hand. Um, but there's a huge, huge gap between Perez and the other two. And the reason Santana is ahead of Hand is because, first of all, Santana's option is not going to be picked up. Um, Seventeen and a half million dollars. Yeah, that's not. I think happen. we all know that. I think even if he had a really good year, they wouldn't pick it up. Um, but he made their decision. Not that he made his decision easy, but he allows the organization to play it off like, hey, you know, like I hit one ninety nine or whatever. So we can't we can't do that. Yeah, coming um, coming off of twenty nineteen, that would be a lot harder to sell to people. The other thing I, is too, the buyouts only. I mean, only. $500,000. But if you think of a $17.5 million option, you might be thinking about what is the buyout there? A million, two million? No, it's 500K. So it's not like it's something that is so uh, so detrimental to their payroll that they would have to consider paying them or something, or they would be worried about that. So so here's, here's my thought process. I, I think, I don't think Brad Hand will be with the team in 2021. I think in their perfect world, 
they'd exercise the option and trade him. And maybe that's it's a trade, and you're probably not going to get a ton for him. Um, I know some people are think that might be crazy to say. He had a really, really good regular season, but the fact is he's on the back half of his career. He has a very obvious decline in velocity, and who knows how many bullets are left in there. And to pay him $10 million when every single team in the league is going to be stingy this winter, it's going to be tough. Um, so the other option maybe is you package him with Lindor, something like that. That could happen. Um, but the issue is, and they've spent part of this month, I think, kind of getting, uh, you know, testing the room here to see what the trade market is for a lot of these guys, because they have to make a decision on that option within five days of the end of the World Series. So it's not like you can just wait until December, realize there's no trade market for Brad Hand and say, all right, see ya. Like, you got to decide that now. And because of that, it wouldn't surprise me if they declined his option. But either way, like, he won't be on the team. It's kind of like Kluber uh, a year ago. With Santana, I don't think he's going to be back with the team either. But at least with him, his market is probably going to suck. <laughs> I mean, first base is not... There aren't a lot of teams desperate for first basemen. There aren't a lot of teams desperate for first basemen who are going to be 35 and are coming off just a terrible year. And so the my thinking is, from his perspective, if his market's terrible and he's only got a few teams offering a minor league deal or maybe a million bucks or two million bucks for a year or something with like a rebuilding team, if I'm him and knowing how much he loves Cleveland and how comfortable he felt in Cleveland, if all things are equal, I would stay here. And I don't know that the Indians even would necessarily want him back because they have other options who can play first. But if you can, just with all the uncertainty with the position players, if Santana's sitting there with an offer from the Tigers and the Pirates and the Indians, and maybe the Indians is a minor league deal, but the other two are just, you know, those one-year, $1 million deals, and you're probably getting traded midseason anyway. Like, he, he probably would want to stay in Cleveland. I, I think he's content financially. So that's my thinking why I would put Santana slightly above hand. But I think in the end, I, odds are neither guy is back. Yeah, I agree with your reason. Is that reason. fair to say? No, I, I do. And I I also agree with the, the hierarchy here. But it, it's an interesting conversation in my mind because despite the fact that I think there's a better chance that Santana is part of the team in 2021 than Brad Hand, I think there's a much better chance that Hand's option gets picked up instead of Santana's, but the outcome will right. be reversed uh, yep. by the time the offseason is over. And, and you know, what I'm curious with, and the Indians have to think about these sort of, sorts of things when they make this decision, with Brad Hand, you're looking at a $10 million club option with a $1 million buyout. So... The thought is, if you can pick it up and get anything, it's better than letting him walk for nothing. So that's in your mind. You can also think of, if that's the case, is there a way where, okay, maybe maybe that $10 million stands in the way of someone wanting to trade for Brad Hand. I, I think a smart play would then be to consider, you know, how much money could you kick into a trade like that to actually get back something that's usable that could help you uh, maybe next year or maybe even years from now. And if you're already spending a million dollars to buy out 
the option. Would it, would it be willing or would, would it be worthwhile to kick in another million dollars or two million dollars on top of the million that you would already have to kick in? Essentially what I'm saying, could you buy another prospect by paying three million dollars instead of let, letting him walk away for a million bucks? Does that make sense? It, yeah. I, it's... Pick up the option and then when you're trying to deal him, you could kick in another couple of million there's, dollars. There's a lot of risk here. That's, that's the issue. You don't, don't know what the market's going to be like. And I think every team is kind of in this holding pattern because nobody knows what 2021 is going to look like. Are there going to be fans in the stands? Are you going to have, you're certainly not going to have a normal year of revenue. Um, even if fans are allowed in, how many fans are going to actually show up? Uh, are you going to play 162 games? What's the season going to look like? You can have a normal spring training. I mean, teams don't know what 2021 is going to look like, so it's really hard for them to determine how flexible they can be this winter. That's why you're going to see just a bloodbath in terms, and not just with the Indians, but in terms of free agency and non-tenders and stuff like that. So, yeah, you that that is an option, I think. But how confident are you that that team's going to be out there that says? Hey, we'll make this trade you want, but you got to pay yeah. four million of the ten. Yeah, no, I think that's part of it, and it rolls and it rolls nicely into our first question, which comes from loyal listener that I don't know how to pronounce his Twitter handle, Futatorius, perhaps. As you have said before, he normally asks very pertinent questions, and he very thought provoking. Yeah, uh, our our mailbag with one for one for us. Are we at the point of the life cycle of team ownership where we? take a haircut in marquee trades. I've never heard it referred to as take a haircut, but I like it because other teams know that the Indians can't or won't even pay the arbitration salaries. In other words, do the Indians lose some leverage because teams know that they just don't have money to spend. And if you're out there trying to sell someone that is arbitration eligible, or maybe even all the way up to Lindor because the teams know that they can't necessarily match whatever he would get in arbitration, that you would give the Indians less because of it. Yeah, I mean, trades are all about leverage. So you look at, you know, a lot of people said, why didn't the Indians just wait till the offseason to trade Clevenger? And it's because they feared they wouldn't have as much leverage because there wouldn't be as many teams wanting to make a big move like that. So I think that plays a role. I think Lindor is a good example, certainly. The Indians are pretty much going to have to settle for whatever... They can get this winter. I say have to. They, they're probably going to settle for whatever they can get this winter. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. Like, you never want to put yourself in a corner. And, you know, the, the relationship between a front office and ownership, I think, is fascinating. It's not something that we ever really learn about because a front office is never going to say the wrong thing about ownership. And ownership is never going to talk. <laughs> or if they do, they're just going to say the right things about the front office. But, you know, it is interesting. I, I'm sure, like, the Indians were in a position last winter where they had to just trade Corey Kluber for whatever the best offer was at that time because there was no way ownership was going to sign off on paying Corey Kluber $18 million. So it certainly plays a role. It's, it's a good point, and I think that's why the Indians front office tries to be proactive and trade guys a little too early instead of a little too late because you don't want to be forced 
into that corner where you don't have leverage and you have to settle in a trade. That's, I mean, you talk to people around the league and everybody says, like, dealing with the Indians front office is really hard because they set these ridiculous price tags for their players. And it takes a lot for them to come off of that. But we've seen instances in recent years where they've, they've had to because you have to trim the payroll. You have to fit all these pieces together on a limited budget. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, sometimes you're pressured into trading Yandy Diaz to facilitate a team taking on money like Edwin Bingo. Encarnacion. Yep. And that's not to say that Yandy Diaz is a star and maybe even as good as we thought that he would be when he first came up. But useful player, not making a lot of money. And looking at the offense right now, I think a guy like that would fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty sure. Um, real quick on that, too. I don't think it makes a difference on the Lindor trade proposals because there's enough teams out there that if you're not, if you think you're walking to the table and using Lindor's 2021 salary against the Indians, the Indians will just say, okay, well, I'll just go call the seven other teams that just called. I don't think you can really utilize that too much, but uh, I think you, as you go further down the list, absolutely that can, can play a factor. Yeah, and, what, and on that note, like I've seen people write that like, oh, the Indians are definitely going to trade Lindor this winter because they're not going to pay him $20 million. And it's like, well, that's, you're kind of missing the big picture here. It's like, they know they need to trade him this winter because this is the last chance to get a decent package for him. Like, they don't want to let him walk and get nothing in return. That's, that's the issue here. You know, sure, would they love to save 20 million bucks? Of course. Um, but that's, that's secondary here. Like, I think, and Chris Antonio even said it, he's like, we can pay one player whatever their salary is. It's just a matter of having enough resources then to put a team around him that's worth a damn. And so, yeah, if they have to hold on to Lindor, or, or if they felt it was the right move to hold on to him, they would, but they are ready to move on because they need to get pieces in return. I mean, you look at what the Orioles got for Manny Machado when they traded him with two months left. Like, they didn't get anything, really. And so the Indians don't want to fall into that trap. Like, they want to move now. And they probably wish they would have moved him a year ago. Gunchammer wants to know. Who? Gunchammer. I just read the questions. I don't make up the Twitter names. Are the Indians going to change your name this offseason? Probably not. I'm curious to see what they do. I mean, I I think a year from now. Um, I would think they'd have a new name for 2022. But I'm curious to see. My guess is they'll say, like, all right, this is our last, like they did with Chief Wahoo. Like, this is our last season with Indians, so buy all your merch now. Um, Yeah, I don't, like, I guess they could do the, the Washington football team route. I would think they'd want to capitalize, as disgusting as it sounds, maybe to some. Like, I probably they probably want to capitalize on the uh, the marketing opportunity. He also wants to know if Bobby, Bobby Bradley's ever going to get another shot. Yeah, he. It's hard because if it wasn't Santana who was struggling like that, then yeah, they probably would have had a shorter leash, and maybe Bradley would have gotten an opportunity. But because it was Santana, and they figured he would turn it around, and He's the proven veteran. They stuck with him. Um, I mean, we've talked about this, TJ. Like, I think Bradley, Bowers, and Naylor would probably be the three guys in line to replace Santana at first base if he doesn't return. 
and I don't really know. None of those three really has anything left to prove at AAA. So not that they got a chance to prove anything last year outside of whatever they gained from seeing those yeah. guys at the alternate site this year. And I th it's tough because we don't get to have these conversations with a lot of the, the minor league guys, but I, I would imagine it was probably easier for pitchers to go out there and make adjustments to their repertoire. I know we've seen videos of guys adding pitches and being able to work on those things for a hitter. How do you work on improving your game when you were at that site? I mean, you go face opposing pitchers, but it's, it's not quite the same. You don't get the same feedback as you do just playing in normal games. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that's... Like, the, the biggest question to me about this season is you had this timeline where it was like, okay, Nolan Jones is probably your starting third baseman for 2021, and Tyler Freeman might be ready to replace Lindor for 2021, and all these other pieces that would have had another year of development. So you would know whether Bowers was a major leaguer. You would know whether Zimmer was a major leaguer. You would know what Bobby Bradley's future is. Well, you lost that, and you didn't answer any questions. I don't think Tyler Freeman is going to jump from high A to the majors and start at shortstop on opening day in 2021 now. Now Nolan Jones has been, you know, making appearances in the outfield and um, there are still, I mean, he still hasn't played above double A. Like there are so many questions that you almost have, you almost have to have like a, a mulligan for a year or part of a year just to see where these guys are at because you need to see them in real games. And so you're right. It's like, well, I don't know that any of these young guys can come in and make adjustments and can stick here. I don't like, I think they have an idea of like, which guys maybe took some steps forward this year and which didn't, but it's so much more ambiguous than it would be if you had tangible stats and data and video and, and all of that resulting from actual games instead of just simulated games where it's really hard to get that heart rate going and get the adrenaline pumping. Hey, let's keep talking about trading good players like Graydon Fox, who wants to know the likelihood that the Indians trade Carlos Carrasco this winter. I don't know. Um, I haven't gotten a good answer on this, and probably for good reason, because I think it is, I mean, I, legitimately, it's like a sensitive subject. I mean, I, I don't think they want to trade him. I think if you, igno if you ignore the person and what he's been through, and what he's meant to the organization and the clubhouse and the team-friendly extensions he's signed. If you look at it strictly from the perspective of they need to cut salary and they have pitching depth and they can get by without him, I mean, you could roll out Bieber, Plesak, Savali, McKenzie, and then Quantrill or Logan Allen or Scott Moss, three guys who are all have nothing to prove at AAA. You'd be fine with that. And all those guys are making the minimum. And they also have Adam Pletko. Uh, like, I mean, they roll eight or nine deep right now, but you can trade Lindor. You can get rid of Brad Hand and Carlos Santana. If you trade Carlos Carrasco after what he's been through and what he's meant, that's going to, I don't know how that's going to go over. And I don't think that's something that people were prepared for. We've been talking about Lindor trades for three years. So like people are at least maybe have come to terms with it. Um, Carrasco's tough. I think that's yeah. really, really tough. Do you and at think... some point, you know, you, you need a veteran in that clubhouse. It's very true. Like I, Tristan McKenzie followed Carrasco around like 
it was a, a duck and her ducklings. Um, so I think that does have some value, and the Indians know that. And I, so I, I really don't know, um, but I, I know Carrasco really loves being in Cleveland. Yeah, I know he spends a ton of time at the Cleveland Clinic, not just for him personally when he was going through what he went through, but visiting kids in the pediatric cancer ward. I mean, there's there's a lot there that makes this really difficult to look at objectively. Yeah, if you take every, everything that's not just strictly stuff that happens on the field and what is smart for an organization to do, you would absolutely be shopping Carrasco this winter. But I don't know how I don't know how you do that and it's not even to me how much like the fan base would react to that cuz if you get a good return for a player and it, it works out they get over it. <laughs> they'll, they'll find a way eventually. Even if it takes 10 to 15 years, like trading back-to-back Cy Young award winners. <laughs> um, and it links right to Carrasco with the second guy being traded, uh, Cliff Lee. I do wonder, would, would, they, would they even consider, if that was truly something that they were thinking about, would they go to Carrasco? Would they ask him his comfort level in doing something like that? I mean, he's been so yes. loyal to the organization, and he's signed extensions that he probably should not have signed, if, according to anybody but him. But there's a reason why. And I, mm-hmm. I, I've said this before. I don't yell at players, and, and I, I don't have a reason for them to... Like, other players, I get why you would want everyone to seek top dollar, because that impacts the entire market and impacts what you might get in the future. So... I know why players want to see players get paid what they should get paid, but me sitting here, if you're comfortable in a spot and this is where you want to be, then sign the deal and, and don't be so upset about it. I mean, hell, there are, there's more. I mean, even Jose Ramirez maybe is, is, is very much in that same category, but guys that make a lot of money still uh, find a place that they're comfortable, and if they're willing to sign, then sign, and it's fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, there's, do, do well, you have no a, doubt. Do you have a conversation with him? If, if that's no even doubt. something that you could, would consider. No doubt in my mind, Chris Antonetti would, would reach out and have a conversation. They're close. Um, and Antonetti is, say what you want about his trade history or um, what he says publicly on the record that reads boring and vague. Uh, he's, I, I think he is a very understanding of the people side of this, and he would do the right, right thing and the right. I mean, you can't just trade Carlos Carrasco and let him find out on Twitter that a, a city and an organization he's given a lot to, he's been through a lot with, um, has decided to trade him. And not only that, but like, if you're a, another team that would try to trade for him, like Carrasco is. I mean, he's in his mid thirties. Like again, teams might be a little hesitant to take on bigger salaries this winter, and. and Given all of his health issues in the past, like, like there's a lot to take on there. There's a lot of risk involved, and I don't know how much you're even going to get in return. Yeah, that's why I'm so skeptical. This is simply a salary dump. That's really, really callous, and I would hope that even ownership could step in and say, "Look, yeah, we need to cut money, but you know, there is a line you have to draw at some point." I I can get it from a player return standpoint, and if the the money saved is secondary and if it allows you to make moves elsewhere it's something we've talked about before then i understand it to a degree most of it's going to be about the return and i'm skeptical that a team is going to be giving you 
something that makes all of that worth it. The, what you have to go through, what he personally mm -hmm. has to go through, what the fans will think of it. I'm just skeptical that you'll, able, you'll be able to find a return that works. And if it is just strictly to make the numbers work at the end of the day, then that's a poor job on ownership. And you've got to step up and make that happen. Yep. All right, got a couple more rolling in from Jamie who wanted to talk more about Nolan Jones. Now, I, I know this is a good question for you because you've talked a lot with, with guys that have worked with him in the minor leagues at third base. They've put a lot of effort into making Nolan Jones a, an acceptable third baseman or maybe even better at the major league level. Is that something that is going to pay off? Is he going to stick at third base? Could they really do that with Ramirez? Because we talked about in the last podcast, like Ramirez is pretty settled at third base. The days of him bouncing around and maybe even having the body type to play second base, I just, I don't see it. Yeah, I'm having like Yandy Diaz flashbacks because on one hand, you know, the front office is saying he's Nolan Jones has turned himself into a really good defender at third base. He's worked extensively with John McDonald. I can't think of a better person to work with on your defense and your positioning and your footwork and your uh, mechanics. Um, and then at the same time, they're trying him out of first base, the corner outfield. And uh, they're saying, you know, they don't really know that they want to move Jose Ramirez off third. So I don't know where his future lies. You know, it's very rare that you start someone at a premium defensive position like shortstop or third base or center field, move them to a less premium position like, like one of the corners, and then they eventually move back. Like I can't think of an example of that off the top of my head. Uh, but... Boy, if Nolan Jones is a good defender at third base and he can hit righties pretty well and has a really good eye and has some power, that's a really valuable player. That's why he's your top prospect. That's why he's a top 50 prospect in baseball. So it's I understand wanting him to have more versatility to maybe get him up to the majors sooner. Um, but, you know, like Jose Ramirez is going to be on this team for three more years. So... I don't, you know, if you're moving Nolan Jones off their base, I don't know that you're, what are you, are you moving him back in three years? Well, what are you doing? I, I don't really know where this is leading to, I guess. Um, but it's, it's going to be an interesting story because at some point, Nolan Jones is going to be major league ready, probably in 2021. And you got to plug him in somewhere. And his, his most valuable spot would, would be in the infield playing third base. Right. Yeah, I don't. And maybe, maybe he will be the type of offensive player where you're playing in the corner, you're playing at first base, and it's fine. Um, and maybe the 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 athleticism plays in those corner spots. But if you can get a guy that f a little bit further up the defensive spectrum, as you're talking about, makes a guy that much more valuable, especially early in your career. You don't want to be starting guys at the beginning of their career too far down the the negative end of the defensive spectrum. Last one comes from Dan. Guys, Classe or Karinchek? Who's the closer? Um, can I? Here's here's what I think will happen. You can think about it. I think yeah. it's one of the guys that have already has already been here, more of a veteran presence. Perhaps uh, I don't. I, I, I guess you could go down the the list of anybody that Whitgren. has a little bit of experience. But I was thinking Whitgren, uh, Maton. Just your boy Pulsatani, Phil Maton. Early in the year, Maton looked like a guy that maybe would settle into that sort of role, and then it all kind of fell apart for him. Uh, maybe it's just because the season was 
so short, didn't get an opportunity to write the ship or whatever, but I'm, I'm not ready to give up on him as being a, a valuable piece in the bullpen for, for a few years. But I, I think maybe you stick with Karinchek in the, the final inning because you want guys like Karinchek and Classe to be able to bounce around and still be able to get big outs early in the game. And also, Karinchek had his struggles coming down the stretch too and gave up a grand slam in the postseason so he's probably got to earn himself into that role too but I don't necessarily love just putting a young guy in the closer spot and just saying this is the only place you can pitch and then that's it yeah I mean it won't be class a right off the bat because he's gonna have to to earn trust and that's gonna take some time I mean Karen check was pitching in you know blowouts in in his appearances in September of 2019 and had to work his way up the food chain in 2020 Class A will have to do that too. I I don't know enough about Class A yet either to kind of project him other than he's got incredible stuff and he's super intriguing. And he keeps uh, with, the ball on the ground. Guy that can force double yeah. plays when there's already traffic. Right, so he could be interesting in the middle innings like that, like 7th and 8th. With Karinczak too, I mean, I, to me, I never really worry about who's the closer because I'd prefer to see Karinczak pitch whenever it's the most critical time. So if that's the eighth, that's the eighth. Sometimes that's the sixth. Sometimes it's the ninth. I, I don't know. So I'm with you and like maybe Wickren is that guy. And then maybe you use Class A and Karen check just depending on high leverage. And maybe, maybe you can forecast and see that, oh, the ninth inning is going to be their two, three, four hitters. So let's save Karen check for that. And let's go with Wickren in the eighth to face the bottom of the lineup. I mean, you can, we've talked about this. It's, it's, Bullpen usage usage is so dependent on workloads and situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I know it won't be Class A right off the bat just because they don't know him very well yet. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a designated guy, then you don't have to be tied to it. And you could start the year by saying that it's going to be something that you don't have to designate at the beginning of the year. I mean, bullpens evolve so, so much over the course of a, a full 162 games anyways. How often does a guy start by pitching in middle relief and by the end, hell, forget by the end of the year, by a month in, he's pitching in high leverage situations. I mean, Phil Maton was thrust into that after he had a couple of good outings and it was, all right, let's go with the captain spin rate over here and get him in these big games. Uh, So I don't don't think it's necessarily that important to designate who it's going to be at the beginning of the year. I don't think it's going to be a surprise if it's Karen Check by the end of 2021 closing games. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would be... I would be very much in favor of, even if a guy that's not even here right now, getting a veteran that you plug into the ninth inning and have maybe your two best relievers floating and able to to handle any spot in the game, sixth, seventh, eighth, whatever it might be. And that's the thing, too, is they have the foundation for a really good bullpen, a young one, and they have a couple guys who throw pretty hard. They have a bunch of guys, and this goes back to an earlier point where it was like, a bunch of guys who would have been ready to be part of the bullpen in 2021, but I don't think you learned enough about Kyle Nelson or Nick Sandlin or some of the other guys who were at the alternate site or who spent 2019 at double A maybe. Um, it's hard to predict what they're going to be in 2021 because you didn't have a minor league season. So maybe in one of these trades you make, you pick up uh, a young, hard-throwing reliever and, and maybe... Maybe he joins Class A and Karinczak in, in that mix, and all of a sudden you've got 
an elite bullpen. Who knows? Ready for a random inning of the day? Let's do it. All right, we'll go pretty quickly on this as we're already up against Is this it. one in any movies? <laughs> it might be. I don't know. Um, he was on a team that was featured in a movie once, sort of. Um, this man played for the 1996 Cleveland Indians, played in 27 games, registered 46 plate appearances, put up an OPS of 480. No guesses? Just, just 96? Just 96. Yeah, uh, played uh, parts of nine years in the major leagues. Geronimo Barroa. No. Right-handed hitter. He, I guess I could give this away. He was 30 years old at the time playing with the Indians. But he began his career in Minnesota at the age of 24 and spent several years with Minnesota, Six parts of six seasons with the Twins. Uh, put up a 693 OPS with Minnesota and... Four years, he got pretty decent playing time. In fact, two of those years, he was almost an everyday player for the. Tw- so I know it's not Corey Koski or Ron Coomer or nope. Scott Stahoviak or Doug Mankiewicz or Shannon Stewart or Lou Ford or Jock Jones or Tori Hunter <laughs> or AJ Pierzynski. Uh, who? It's, it's not Bruce Avon. Uh, he then went on to play with the Royals in '98 and '99. The hell was he doing in '97? Ah, uh, it's a good question. Uh, he was signed by the Red Sox, released, signed by the White Sox, released. So he just never made it to the major leagues with either of those teams. Infielder or outfielder? Infielder. Mm. Jeff Branson. It's not him. No. Nope. He played for the Reds. Oh boy. I feel like when when we do one of these and they actually played 27 games, we should get it because usually it's. I mean, Jeff Tam made one appearance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know what? Go to hell. Go to hell. When's his birthday? Uh, his birthday is September 24th, 1965. Oh, okay. Can you give me a position? He played ma- majority of the time he was the third baseman. Third baseman? He was a third baseman. And it's not Chan Perry, because we've already done him. Nope. He was drafted by the Twins in the 13th round of the 86th a draft. third baseman in 96. What was Tommy doing? Well, you know, he hit right-handed, so Tommy was probably on the bench. <laughs> Got to get this man in against Mark those lefties. Carrion? It was not Mark Carrion, who was uh, first baseman because he threw right. left-handed. Casey Candele? One of the no, not Casey Candele. One of those rare hit right, throw left guys. It's not Jeff Manto. Nope. I feel like I've named like every bench player. Ah, uh, boy, this is frustrating. It's not Tyler Houston. That was 98. Apparently he is currently a coach with the Big League Baseball Camp in Minnesota, at least according to his Wikipedia page. Oh, this is frustrating. Yeah, I mean, you'll know it when I actually... Hey, all um, you people driving in your cars right now yelling the answer, hey, fuck you. (laughs) This isn't easy. Okay. Do you give up? Yeah. It is none other than Scott Leyes. Oh. Ew. I always got him and Jesse Levis confused. Levis, Leis, perhaps people confuse because it kind of looks like Lewis, or Luis, Scott Leis. Yeah, no recollection. I mean, I, I know the name, but jeez. Yeah, I don't like this podcast. I know the name, but I can't quite remember where I subscribe. Well, I'll tell you. Apple Podcasts, <laughs> Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Any final words? Uh, happy Halloween. <laughs>